December 17, 1846, must have felt surreal to the citizens of Tucson. The last few days had been tense, with everyone readying themselves for what was rumored to be an invasion. Then, Captain Jose Antonio Comandaran, who had spent decades now fiercely defending his post from the relentless Apache, had actually abandoned it. He and his men had fled south to San Javier del Bac after negotiations with this invading army, the size of which was not really known, had come to a standstill. Tucson was on its own. There was nothing to stop this force from taking the Presidio. However, the company that eventually marched into Tucson unopposed turned out to be relatively small. Most of the men probably had no better training than their Mexican counterparts, and they happily traded with local merchants for what supplies they needed, relishing in being out of the trackless desert they had just come across. The population of Tucson, the families of many having lived at the old Pueblo for generations now, must not have known how to feel about these arrivals. After all, these were Norte Americanos, who even now were waging a war against Mexico. And, in the most bizarre moment of all, Tucson watched as a new flag was raised over the Presidio. For the first time, the stars and stripes were now flying over Arizona. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 21, The Mormon Battalion. When we left off last time, the U.S. and Mexico had come to the brink of war. Then, in a grand display of zeal, stubbornness, Machiavellian maneuvering, and condescension on both sides, they had both jumped off the cliff together. For Mexico's part, their national honor had been impugned by the U.S. gobbling up Texas, despite the fact that Mexico still claimed it. Adding insult to injury, American forces had invaded when they crossed the Nueces River and were found along the Rio Grande. Mexican pride could not stand for such an insult. On the U.S. side, Mexico had rejected an entirely generous offer to buy some of its northern territory, and its newest government had refused to even speak to the American diplomat John Slidell. Worse yet, American troops had been fired upon while on a simple survey of the new territory of Texas that had chosen through a democratic process to join the United States. American pride could not stand for such an insult. So, here the two sides are, at war. I think it's fair to say that Mexico was not prepared for this sort of conflict at all. We've gone over the country's problems at length now, but please permit me to pile on just a tiny bit more. Mexican military officers were just an extension of Mexican political officials, all carrying long knives and waiting for the right chance to grab some power. One estimate says there were 18 officers for every five regular soldiers, and an imbalance that is more than a little mind-boggling. And let's not forget that each of those officers is pulling a salary that can only be described as bloated. Finally, their loyalty, not to mention their military skill, is always questionable, even at the best of times. As for the average soldier, the news didn't get much better. 
The regular forces were mostly conscripts, with drunks, prisoners, and vagabonds forced to fill out the ranks. Historian Timothy J. Henderson writes that Amerindians were literally rounded up with lassos as they fled from military recruiters, and were brought to the barracks in chains. And don't get me started on supplies. As you have gathered from pretty much every episode after Mexican independence, there was no food or supplies to keep these men fed or clothed. Mexico didn't even have any firearms factories. So what weapons they did have were antiquated muskets they had managed to get from Europe by, I don't know, rummaging around in a bargain bin or something. President José Joaquín Herrera had tried to reform the military, procure some loans and set up civic militias during his time in office, but this turned out to be a boondoggle that helped pave the way for his ejection from the presidency in December 1845. Now, to be fair, most Mexicans realized all these problems and were not placing much confidence in the notion that their army could somehow steamroll the United States and take back Texas. But there was some thought that if they couldn't actually win, maybe they could possibly eke out a stalemate. As Henderson explains, there was hope that maybe, just maybe, if the army could hold the northern line, they could force the U.S. into an invasion by sea. And if they could hold the Norte Americanos to the coast, tropical diseases and guerrilla attacks could work in their favor. Finally, there was the matter of Oregon. You see, at the same time, the U.S. was in a bitter dispute with Great Britain over where exactly the boundary of the Oregon Territory ended. Some in the U.S. made the claim that the country should control everything up to the southern tip of present-day Alaska at 54 degrees 40 minutes latitude. At the same time, some in Great Britain claimed that it controlled everything up to 42 degrees latitude, or roughly all of Washington and Oregon. This disagreement became hostile enough that it led to the Democrats adopting the hardline position that it should have everything up to Alaska, immortalized in the phrase 5440 or fight. From the Mexican perspective, this disagreement was a really, really good thing. Either the U.S. would be so distracted by that conflict that they would not fully commit themselves to this little war down south, or maybe Mexico could ally with Great Britain to really sock it to the Norte Americanos. Unfortunately for that alternate history, in June 1846, Great Britain and the U.S. were able to come to an understanding, fixing the border of the Oregon Territory at the 49th parallel, which remains the international border with Canada to this day. Nope, Mexico was, regrettably, on its own for this war. As state historian Thomas Sheridan astutely puts it, quote, Arizona was never a prize in the conflict. On the contrary, most Anglo pioneers and politicians considered it a wasteland, a desert, an Indian-infested obstacle between Santa Fe and San Diego, end quote. But it did lie between Santa Fe and San Diego, which means that someone had to cross it for the good of the war effort. And that leads us to the U.S. invasion of the Southwest. The Army of the West had been assembled for just that task at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, by June 1846. The head of this army was Colonel Stephen Watts Kearney, a New Jersey-born soldier who had joined the Army at the beginning of the War of 1812 and had steadily risen up the ranks. He had spent the last decade as an officer with the 1st Dragoons Regiment, 
This would later morph into the famed U.S. Cavalry, leading Kearney to often be dubbed the father of the U.S. Cavalry. During his time with the Dragoons, he had seen much of the Oregon and Santa Fe trails, along with the Rocky Mountains. So Kearney really was the guy to turn to when the war broke out. Shortly thereafter, the orders came down to bring New Mexico and California into the fold. The Army of the West, numbering about 1,700 men, 300 of which were regular soldiers, left Fort Leavenworth in late June 1846 with 1,000 pack mules and 16 pieces of light artillery. En route, they were met by a convoy of wagons hoping that the army would be able to reopen the Santa Fe Trail, which had been closed a couple years beforehand by Santa Ana. Ahead of this party, Kearney sent Captain Philip St. George Cook and the merchant James McGoffin to treat with New Mexican Governor Manuel Armijo about the peaceful surrender of that territory. State historian Marshall Trimble provides the juicy detail that Cook probably carried a lot of cash into this meeting as an inducement, though other sources simply say that the envoys were able to prevail on the governor to allow the army to enter New Mexico without resistance. I will add that early state historian James H. McClintock writes a much more patriotic version, where Armijo calls upon his countrymen to defend New Mexico, but that army melts away after seeing the size and raw might of the U.S. force. On August 18th, Kearney, now promoted to Brigadier General, and his army entered Santa Fe. This is the part where the early American historians wax poetic about Kearney wasting no time instituting U.S.-style laws and government, thus bringing freedom and democracy, yada yada yada. The general did appoint a governor and other officials to oversee governance of this territory for the U.S. Several months later, however, a Mexican rebellion will actually rise up and kill the governor appointed by Kearney. This insurgency obviously will be crushed eventually, but we're not here to talk about the history of New Mexico, so uh, on with our story. Because, only a month after taking New Mexico, General Kearney set off on September 25th, 1846, toward his next goal, California. And what's between New Mexico and California? Yep, you guessed it. En route, Kearney's expedition, consisting of 300 of his dragoons, encountered Kit Carson and pressed him into helping guide the force to San Diego. Their route would lead them mainly along the Gila, thus bypassing the Mexican settlements along the Santa Cruz altogether. The major encounters during this trek across Arizona, then, were to be with the natives. On the upper Gila, there were some dealings with the Apaches. Though not hostile, the interactions were still tense, and those writing about the expedition had a general negative attitude toward the group, which they dubbed Gilans. Early state historian Thomas Farish says that the army traded for mules with the Apaches, led by Mangas Coloradas. Interactions with the Odom and Maricopa were remarkably different, with it being noted by the expedition writers that they were friendly and even a bit gregarious. The journey through Arizona was pretty much uneventful, but the desert did not exactly charm the newcomers. Company member Dr. John S. Griffin reports, quote, Every bush is full of thorns, and every rock you turn over has a tarantula or a centipede under it. The fact is, take this country altogether, and I defy any man who has not seen it, or one as utterly worthless, even to imagine anything so barren. End quote. By November 25th, 
Two months after starting out from Santa Fe, Kearney and his men had crossed the Colorado and were on their way toward San Diego. But right behind him was another group that was destined to make a much bigger splash in the annals of Arizona history. I'm of course talking about none other than the namesake of today's episode, the Mormon Battalion. Before Kearney left Santa Fe, he told now Lieutenant Colonel Philip St. George Cook to take command of this battalion when it reached Santa Fe and carry out the mission of breaking a wagon trail to San Diego. The Mormon Battalion had been recruited earlier that summer in Council Bluffs, Iowa. As the name suggests, it was comprised of Mormons, or members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Considering that the Church will play a substantial role in our narrative moving forward, especially when we talk about American settlements in northeastern Arizona and along the Salt River, we might as well go over the background now. The Church had been founded in northwestern New York in 1830 by Joseph Smith, Jr., who claimed to have been receiving revelations from God via visions and angelic visitations stretching back a decade. As part of this, he had published the Book of Mormon. Smith claimed this book, translated from gold plates, was a companion volume of scripture to the Bible that contained the record of ancient civilizations in the New World and God's words to them. It's from this book that members of the church acquired the nickname Mormons. I will add here that in recent years, the church has stressed that it would like to be referred to by its full and proper name. However, for convenience sake, and to be in line with my sources, I will still refer to them as Mormons, but just know it's a moniker the modern-day church is distancing itself from. Now, for a variety of reasons, both political and religious, the growing church met with strong opposition and had been driven out of New York, Ohio, Missouri, and finally Illinois, with Smith himself being killed in 1844. Under the direction of Brigham Young, Smith's successor, they were now setting out toward the West, hoping to find some peace. They had gone as far as western Iowa when envoys from the U.S. arrived to inform them of the war with Mexico and to recruit soldiers. Most of the church members, bitter about what they felt was the government's failure to protect their First Amendment religious rights, were opposed to the idea. However, Young saw this as a chance to both mend fences and to raise funds to help the thousands of members of the church make the journey west. Eventually, a group of 500 men, 25 women, and even some children marched to Fort Leavenworth, where most of the men sent the money from their clothing allowance to help provide for their families. A fun side anecdote has that the quartermaster was surprised that all the battalion men could sign their name, whereas only a third of another group that had recently been raised in Missouri could do so. The battalion reached Santa Fe on August 12, 1846. Cook didn't much care for the appearance of his new command and immediately sent 80 of them, including the oldest and feeblest men and the majority of the women, up to Pueblo, Colorado. What remained of the battalion started its march on October 19th. In early November, Cook would dismiss even more members of the company who were either infirm or he didn't believe cut out for the rough road ahead. All in all, the battalion was down to some 350 men by this point. Provisions were also in short supply, with little to be obtained from the quartermaster in Santa Fe. Battalion member Levi Hancock even composed a short poem about the situation, writing, quote, 
We sometimes now lack for bread, are less than quarter rations fed, and soon expect for all of meat not less than broke-down mules to eat. End quote. I will add in my own wry observation here that, though they didn't realize it, they were pretty much having the authentic Mexican soldiering experience. The immediate obstacle was crossing over the continental divide in the rugged country of southwestern New Mexico. The wagon route was broken by having men march in two files to create ruts for the wagon wheels to run in. On the far side of the divide, the wagons had to be lowered by hand using ropes. As guides, Cook had procured the services of mountain men Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau, Antoine Leroux, and Pauline Weaver, if I'm anywhere close to pronouncing those names right. Weaver, you might recall from a few episodes ago, when I explained how he had trapped across a lot of Arizona. He had even been in a group that had stopped in Tucson some 15 years beforehand. Also, as just another interesting aside, Charbonneau was actually the son of Sacagawea, who had guided the Lewis and Clark expedition. However, the further south the battalion went, the less familiar the guides were with the territory. Weaver and LaRue knew about the abandoned San Bernardino Ranch in extreme southeastern Arizona. We briefly talked about this land grant in episode 16. And that water could be had there. However, they were off when it came to the distance it would take to reach it, so the battalion was not able to make it until December 2nd, nearly a month and a half since leaving Santa Fe. The main appeal of the ranch, aside from providing water and a chance to rest, was the thousands of wild cattle that were still roaming the area. The soldiers eagerly ate up the beef, with some reporting it was the best they had ever tasted. Near the ranch, they had their first dealings with the Apache, but were unable to obtain any mules from them. Cook had a dislike for the Apache, though grudgingly he admits that they were fine horsemen and very capable with lances and bows. There were no hostilities, except in the instance where one man was separated from the group and the Apache stripped him of his clothing and weapons. Overall, though, the Apaches relayed their hatred of the Mexicans, but professed to be friendlier toward the Norte Americanos. Believe me when I tell you, that will definitely change. From the ranch, the group continued westward, more or less skirting the current international border, before heading northwest again to find the San Pedro River. And it's along the banks of the San Pedro that the battalion would have its first, and only, battle. But instead of Mexicans, the force had to protect itself against a potentially more formidable opponent. Bulls. I remarked back in episode 18 that basic ranching operations, such as castrating young male cattle, was not being performed due to the Apache. Well, this is where it comes into play. Because on December 11, 1846, the battalion would encounter a group of wild cattle and the bulls took an instant dislike to them. Cook recounts that he had to tell the men to arm themselves with muskets. A battalion member recorded that the bulls would charge at anything, the men, the mules, even the wagons. One man was gored in the thigh, and the bull tossed him, head over heels, well over six feet. A bull struck one of the wagons with enough force to move it out of the ruts of the road they were making. 
another gored one of the lead mules, spilling its entrails out. Several of the other men had close calls, managing to get away with just a few bruises. Cook at one point says that a large, coal-black bull charged him and a Corporal Frost. The Corporal, who must have had nerves of steel, waited until the bull was only six paces away before firing his musket. The bull then dropped dead nearly at their feet. Cook also says that another bull took two bullets to the lungs and two to the heart, but still finished its charge before expiring. 16-year-old Robert Whitworth, a battalion member, recorded that at the end of the skirmish, four mules and 19 bulls were dead. Luckily, despite some injuries, no one was seriously hurt during what has become known as the Battle of the Bulls. And despite the full-on war happening and being deep in enemy territory, this would be the only major quote-unquote engagement the battalion would see during its year in service. If you are ever in the area, I'd know of at least two monuments to this battle put up by Boy Scout troops in the 1950s. The most accessible is probably off of State Route 90, where it crosses the San Pedro River, east of Sierra Vista. It's on the east side of the river, north side of the road, in case you're wondering. But Cook and his men had no idea that the bulls were the worst enemy they would face, because they were heading toward the largest Mexican settlement in the region, Tucson. Locals in the area gave reports to Cook that the Presidio had a contingent of some 200 men, which, after everything we discussed during the last five episodes or so, we know was a wild exaggeration. The battalion's interpreter, Dr. Stephen C. Foster, was incredulous about these troop numbers and rode ahead by himself to get a better look at the situation. On December 14th, three days after their battle with the bulls, the company struck westward in the direction of Tucson. They came upon a mescal distillery of all things. A fun anecdote is that a couple men, probably not any of the teetotaling Mormons, tried the distillery's goods, but described its quality as poor. Part of this operation, however, was a small contingent of Mexican soldiers and an unnamed sergeant. The sergeant told Cook that word of a U.S. force marching on Tucson had spread, and even now the inhabitants were preparing to flee. His orders were to request that Cook and his troops not march on Tucson, but please, please, please go around instead. Cook replied that the Americans were not there to molest the garrison at all, but would want to trade in the Presidio for flour and other needed goods. During the next several days, further envoys from Tucson would arrive, again asking the company to go around the Presidio. Cook was polite but firm in declining this request. We get some interesting back and forth here, such as a corporal who turned out to be Commodoran's own son making an appeal. Or Cook taking some of the delegates hostage after learning that Foster was currently being kept in the Presidio. The next day, Foster was brought to the camp and the Mexican hostages released. At one point, Cook entered into lengthy talks with a specially appointed commissioner sent from the Presidio. Cook asked that the troops make a symbolic gesture of surrendering some of their arms and promising not to take part in the current war. Unsurprisingly, this request was rejected by the Mexicans. At the end of the day, Cook was set on making it to Tucson and prepared the men for battle. 
However, faced with this invading force, whose number wasn't quite certain, Captain Komodoran made the decision to retreat with his men and what civilians would come with him to San Javier del Bac. He would send a letter to the governor of Sonora, who was then actually approaching Tubac with a small force, saying that Tucson had been taken by a force of some 500 Norte Americanos. Alarmed by this exaggerated news, the governor turned around and headed back south to prepare for the defense of his state. The battalion marched into Tucson without any resistance around midday, December 17, 1846. Members of the battalion mentioned that the Presidio was filled mostly with old men and children who had not fled. The overall impression of Tucson and the people were favorable, with several remarking how intelligent and friendly the inhabitants were and how positively verdant the settlement was compared to the surrounding desert. Quote, it looked good to see young green wheat patches and fruit trees, wrote battalion member Henry Bigler, and to see hogs and fowls running about. Here are the finest quinces I ever saw, end quote. Most of the men engaged in trading of clothes and other items for needed food, mostly flour. Historian James Officer says that the journals of the men show that Tucson had previously been completely unknown to them, even as a place name. Even given the lack of spelling standardization of the time, each member seemed to record it differently, with one even calling it Tubson. Cook wanted to press on to San Javier de Bac to meet Comandaran and his men there, and in the afternoon, he and a volunteer group of 50 men started heading south. However, they came across a dense mesquite thicket, and he was worried that it would be the perfect setting for an ambush, so the entire group turned around. Making camp a short distance away, the only trouble that occurred was during the night when a sentry fired on what he thought was a group of soldiers, but turned out to be Mexican civilians returning to Tucson. Thankfully, no one was hurt. Before leaving the next day, Cook would leave a note for Comodoran, apologizing for the inconvenience. He would also write a letter intended for Manuel Maria Gandra of all people, who Cook believed was the governor of Sonora. It's unknown why he thought this, as several years had gone by since Gandra had held that office, or why Cook believed, as he wrote in his journal, that Gandra was well disposed toward the United States. In this letter, Cook explained the purpose of his march, and his friendship for all of Sonora, and makes comments about how Sonora was not hostile toward the U.S., having been solely focused on dealing with hostile natives. He then actually begins to try and drive a wedge between Sonora and Mexico. The central government, he writes, gave her, Sonora, no protection, and was therefore entitled to no support. To this, it might have been added that Mexico supports a war against Sonora. He continues in another part of the letter, quote, The unity of Sonora with the states of the north, now her neighbors, is necessary effectively to subdue these Parthian Apaches. End quote. I have to say, it's a weird piece of wartime propaganda, though he does make some good points about how little support Sonora could count on from Mexico City. It turned out to be a good thing that the battalion started heading out on December 18th. After receiving Comadran's report, the governor of Sonora sent a letter to our old friend Jose Maria Elias Gonzalez to raise a force and march on Tucson. 
After several days, Elise Gonzalez had a force of some 70 men and rode north to meet up with Comodoran. By that time, however, there was no need for a counterattack as the Mormon battalion was now halfway to California. The battalion now headed north toward the Gila River to follow Kearney's route. They would pass by Picacho Peak, described by Bigler as resembling a cow's horn, and would have only the water from small puddles to drink. When they reached the Gila, Lieutenant George Stoneman decided to test the river's navigability by constructing a small barge on which he put some of the rations and supplies. However, he hadn't gotten too far when this improvised vessel struck too many sandbars in the relatively shallow river and sunk. As state historian Marshall Trimble puts it, Stoneman went down with his ship and then walked ashore. Along this part of the trail, they were met by the Gila River Pima, and later the Maricopa, who received them graciously. Cook has the most praise for these groups, recounting that, quote, The Pima are large and fine-looking, seem well-fed, ride good horses, and are variously clothed. But innocence and cheerfulness are their most distinctive characteristics. End quote. Of the Maricopa, he wrote, quote, Notwithstanding a different language, all that has been said of the Pimas is applicable to them. End quote. The battalion continued marching westward, eventually reaching the Colorado on January 9th. Another month of toil and crossing the desert in California would finally bring them to San Diego on January 29th. Cook would write, quote, History may be searched in vain for an equal march of infantry. Half of it has been through a wilderness where nothing but savages and wild beasts are found, or deserts where, for want of water, there is no living creatures. Without a guide who has traversed them, we have ventured into trackless tablelands where water was not found for several marches. With crowbar, pick, and axe in hand, we have worked our way over mountains, which seemed to defy aught save the wild goat, and hewed a passage through a chasm of living rock more narrow than our wagons. Thus marching half-naked and half-fed, and living upon wild animals, we have discovered and made a road of great value to our country." Thus, volunteers, you have exhibited some high and essential qualities of veterans. End quote. Lofty rhetoric aside, it is a great accomplishment. The battalion had actually completed the longest infantry march in U.S. history, having marched somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,900 miles since being recruited in Iowa. The company also remains the only religious unit organized for federal service in U.S. military history. Though the road they made was little more than a trail with some obstacles removed, for the next decade, Cook's Wagon Road would be the best-known travel route across Arizona, and the only one suited for wagons. Once gold was discovered in California, this southern route would be highly used by the 49ers trying to get west. I should add here also that there were several men from the Mormon Battalion at Sutter's Mill in January 1848, when the discovery of gold set off the rush west. Parts of the wagon trail and its general alignment would later be adopted into the Gila Trail, an important wagon route to cross Arizona. This trail would also go on to help define the route of the Southern Pacific Railroad in the late 19th century and the coast-to-coast -coast highway US-80 in the early 20th. Today, the general route of Cook's Wagon Trail can still be seen if you drive State Route 80, Interstate 10, 
and Interstate 8 between New Mexico and Yuma. All in all, not bad for a group of men venturing across trackless tablelands with crowbars, pixes, and axes. We'll finish 1846 and today's episode here, with the first major American pushes through Arizona complete. But join me next week as we wrap up the war years and watch as Arizona, albeit in pieces, is absorbed into the United States. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.